Hello everyone, I'm James Lindsay and you are listening to my subscribers only podcast, James Lindsay Only Subs, which means you subscribe, contribute or support me in some material way and I appreciate you. I'm happy and proud to bring you this kind of exclusive content under the new discourses umbrella and I very much appreciate your support. Um, What I want to talk about today is something we've kind of brought up a few times in the past. I want to talk about critical race theory and how it's fundamentally anti-American in a particular way. I actually want to just go into the book Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which I've talked about many times with Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, and I want to read the first paragraph, and I want to investigate what that first paragraph is telling us about critical race theory, and what I think we're going to conclude is that it is fundamentally and deeply against the American project and against the project of all of free society, as a matter of fact, in the West. We could talk in another time or another place about how that's going to be situated within the liberationist framework, which seeks liberation from free capitalist societies into a more collectivist frame, uh, socialism without the bureaucracies, as it has been phrased. But that's not the goal here. We're just going to take part. We're going to read and take apart this first paragraph of critical race theory and introduction so we can better understand what critical race theory is really about, really understand where it stands in relationship to the key ideas of the American project and all of free Western civilization. So we begin. I'll just read the paragraph. Actually, let me frame out who Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk are. Jean Stefanczyk, I know much less about as a person. She is Richard Delgado's partner, both writing and life. And Richard Delgado has been a very, he's in his 80s now, if I'm not mistaken. He's been a prolific and significant figure in the critical race theory project from very early on, many years, 40 years or more now. So he's not a fringe player. This is not a fringe book. That's what I really want to convey. Delgado is often held up when you say, well, who well, who are the leading lights? It's not like we're even, I mean, Robin DiAngelo and even Ibram Kendi can't be denied. They try, but they can't. But the truth is, Richard Delgado is like one of these characters that if you knock him out and you say he's not a real critical race theorist, then you're literally talking about one of the people who's held up as one of the key founding figures of the entire ideology. And so this is a a central character, and he's written this undergraduate-level textbook, Critical Race Theory, an introduction to give a readable, digestible introduction to the ideas within Critical Race Theory. And here's what he has to say about it. Again, I'm reading just the first paragraph. So first paragraph doesn't tell you everything. You should read the whole book. But the first paragraph can tell you an awful lot. You know, this is he's going to explain what critical race theory is. The first section in the book is titled, What is Critical Race Theory? And this is what they want you to come away with if all you read is the first two pages of the book. I want you to come away with, and I'll read the whole thing now, and then we'll take it apart and talk about what it what it tells us. They say the critical race theory, CRT, movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, group, and self-interest, and even feelings in the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step progress, 
critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. So that last sentence, at least, you've heard me talk about many times. That first sentence you've heard me talk about a few times. That's the first paragraph of Critical Race Theory and Introduction in full, without any commentary, without any editorializing, and now we comment and editorialize. So I want to draw attention to the first five words of this paragraph, the very first five words of this book, outside of a story they tell and a foreword and acknowledgments and all that. Those are the critical race theory movement. So we're talking about a movement. It's not typical, and it's not characteristic of scientific theories that there's some movement around them. That's not really how theories work. This is a movement, and it's a movement that's characterized as a collection of activists first and scholars. So this is an activist movement. Critical race theory is an activist movement that involves scholarship. They, this, that's exactly what this says. The critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholarship or scholars interested in studying and transforming, transforming, fundamentally changing at a, at a new level, the relationship among race, racism, and power. So it's going to talk about race, it's going to talk about racism, it's going to think about things in terms of racism, as you know, and the fundamental issue, the thing that doesn't, race and racism go together, but power doesn't. Power is something different. And so they're going to think about race and racism in terms of power, and it is a movement meant to transform that relationship. It's a movement of activists and scholars, okay? So that gives you some idea. We're going to get... We're going to get back to this in a second, though. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but, but, so whatever traditional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses might be, whatever they happen to, to, to tackle the way that they challenge things, that's not what critical race theory does, but, but it places them, they say, in a broader perspective that includes economics I wonder which kind. I wonder which kind, right? It's a neo-Marxian movement. So one would think that maybe it places them in a broader perspective that includes Marxism. History. Well, there's a number of ways that that can be read. There is the Marxian way. There is also the way that, you know, we're going to constantly appeal back. As I've said before, you could summarize critical race theory as America used to be racist, so give us power and money now. History. You know, it's very easy to appeal back, and this is what you hear all the time. Look at this terrible thing that happened in 1911. Look at this terrible thing that happened in 1852. Look at this terrible thing that happened in 1971. Look at this terrible thing that happened in 1955. Therefore, you know, when such and such was defined, when these stereotypes were laid down, when the first people started to say something like long time no see it's a direct translation from chinese so clearly it's racist so that transitions us into their next word context which context their context of course they're going to place traditional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses but not the discourses themselves sorry the same issues that they try to tackle race and racism 
and put them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, framing. And then the next one's really telling group and self-interest. Group interest. Self-interest. So there's a book. It's an education book, a critical. It's something like Social Justice and Education Manual or something like this. And it's a very long book. And I happen to have it. I forget the title exactly. And in chapter something like 19, they give a definition for social justice. And they say that where liberal democracy is concerned with individual rights, social justice is concerned with group rights. So group interest, group interest in, indicates that we're talking about critical race theory being collectivist. We're now going to think of identity groups as de facto collectives, whether we want to trace this back through the neo-Marxian line, which is inherently collectivist, which we could, or whether we want to trace this back through the other line in critical race theory, back to W.E.B. Du Bois, who was certainly well before neo-Marxism. He was not a neo-Marxist. He just went to Germany and studied with the people who went on to found the Frankfurt School. Sorry, he studied with the people who went on to teach the people who founded the Frankfurt School of critical theory. And what he studied was Herder, uh, Herderian nationalism, folkish nationalism. And he came back and he wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folks. Okay. And I argue that we should just re, re, recontextualize that title and put it correctly, The Souls of Black, V-O-L-K. This folkish nationalism, that come, this is where you get ideas like black nationalism. We're going to create a nation of black people who have something in common in their skin color, thus their culture somehow. This folkish thinking comes into critical race theory largely through W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois is held up and many, many, many critical race theory books, including this one, has a significant influence on the discipline. And so we're talking about group interest, so it's collectivist. And self-interest, that's where your neo-Marxism really comes in. Because, I mean, you get a little bit of that from Du Bois and so on, but this is where you really get neo-Marxism, because the idea of false consciousness and self-interest are really at the heart of that cynical line of thought in critical theory, that people are actually act operating in their own self-interest. We have, for example, in Derek Bell, first critical race theorist. We have the interest convergence thesis. You could argue in a real sense that critical race theory is largely based on the interest convergence thesis. And the interest convergence thesis posits, that's why you need a critical theory of race, is to root up that secret self-interest, that cynical motive. It, the, the interest convergence thesis holds in Derek Bell's formulation that things like Brown versus Board of Education and all of these civil rights victories were not really civil rights victories. They were ways for white people to, being at the dominant racial group in society that was imposing race on everybody else, to make more people happy in their own self-interest. Kind of an extreme but genuine. You even see examples of this regularly. I saw one on Twitter um, today at the time of this recording where positioning yourself as an anti-racist, which critical race theory demands of you. Critical race theory says you must, it's not enough not to be racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. And the second you do that as a white person, it's in your own self-interest. People will think you are progressive. People will think you're a good person. People will think you're doing the work when you could technically be doing more work. So it's in your own self-interest. That's interest convergence. You only actually did it for this very cynical self-interested motive. And so technically becoming anti-racist was a means by which you were able to perpetuate and further entrench and further hide racism, which is why, in Robert D'Angelo's words, no one is ever done. It is a life 
lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. And then Delgado and Stefanczyk point out that critical race theory, not only does it tackle issues of civil rights and ethnic studies, but in a new different way in these new different contexts, but also that it even uses, it even, it even situates them in the perspective of feelings and the unconscious. So now you have almost a Rousseauian emotion over reason vibe. You have this kind of Rousseau to romanticism to existentialism to postmodern nihilism. And feelings become kind of this centerpiece. It's how you actually feel. It's not what you know. It's what you feel that becomes more relevant. So this is not a good way. Western man. This is not a good way. Our feelings are very powerful. We are a very emotional species. We are a very intuitive species that has to be accounted for. But the point of the Enlightenment was specifically to say that that's dangerous. And if we want to do well, if we want to get answers right, we have to slow down, get out of our amygdala, get out of our mammalian brain, and get into our, our, our cortex. We have to get into our prefrontal cortex. We have to be logical. We have to be reasonable. We have to set aside those emotional impulses to the best degree we can. And that's what Rousseau rejected to disaster. That's that's what Rousseau rejected to disaster in the French Revolution. We're going to favor emotion over reason and the unconscious. So it's been said that neo-Marxism was the attempt to wed Marx and Freud So we talk about false consciousness. Marx and Engels mentioned it, I think, two or three times, something like this, in all of their writing. It wasn't a central concept of Marxism, at least not classically, at least not from Marx and Engels, but the neo-Marxists talk about it all the time. Herbert Marcuse in One Dimensional Man talks about it all the time. In fact, being a one-dimensional man is to be in false consciousness. And it's a critical consciousness that adds a second dimension to man for Herbert Marcuse. So false consciousness, being inside your, not just your thoughts, but your implicit biases, your unconscious biases, your unconscious mind, the psychoanalytic stuff, this all got incorporated into neo-Marxism. It also got picked up by the postmodernist that there's these secret things hiding inside of our head. So this is where the mind reading powers, self-interest and the unconscious That's where the mind-reading powers come from in critical race theory. Again, this is not a good direction. This is the opposite of the British Enlightenment upon which the American uh, experiment was based. We're going to eschew emotion as a primary decision-making process. We're going to defer to reason. We're going to defer to conversation, discussion, debate. We're going to defer to evidence. We're going to slow down in kind of Daniel Kahneman's expression, and we're going to think slow when getting the answer matters, which is to say we're going to use rational approaches. And then when we have, say, social intuition is perfectly fine to think fast, and Kahneman's thinking fast and thinking slow, social intuition should be in these kinds of things. But social intuition is not a great way to get right answers about the world. It's a great way to create mass hysteria. It's a great way to to create very charismatic and zealous movements. It is not a great way to order a society that's going to protect individuals from the mob, the madness of crowds, for example. So 
critical race theory is like, hey, let's take these same issues that are super sensitive, like race and racism, and let's put them in a new context. We're going to focus on power. We're going to talk about power all the time, just like the neo-Marxists precede us, just like the postmodernists that inform us. Now we're going to place them in this broader perspective, which sounds great. Everybody wants a broader perspective, right? It includes economics, history, context, or in other words, framing, group interest, self-interest, and feelings and the unconscious. It's like that sentence is taking every bad idea of the counter-enlightenment and cramming them into one place and saying, you know what, we're going to take this ultra-sensitive issue that's been a threat to the cohesion of the United States, for example, for all of its history to the point where we fought an incredibly bloody war, 300,000 dead, paid in blood, to try to end slavery in the Civil War. And let's just take all of this stuff that made things like abolition and uh, civil rights possible and like, no, let's take it in a broader perspective that includes all these terrible ideas. Marxism, Rousseauian romanticism, blah, blah, blah. Postmodern nihilism. And then we get to the Crooks sentence. Unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. Critical race theory questions, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so hold up. Unlike traditional civil rights, and I've harped on that particular four-word phrase a few times in, in different places, that they reject the traditional civil rights that they've just talked about that need to be placed into a broader perspective. So we're going to take those same issues. We're going to put them in a broader perspective, and then we're going to reject something about traditional civil rights. And what is it that they want to throw out? Unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. So that's what they're going to throw out, incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. And instead, we're going to critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order. And this is very important, because now we can start putting some things together. We have critical race theory is a movement of activists and scholars. They're concerned with power as it rolls out along the axes of race and racism. It's going to reject traditional approaches. It's going to take up those same issues, but it's going to reject traditional approaches to civil rights. And in particular, it's going to reject incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. So what we're dealing with, if it's going to question the very foundations of the order of society while rejecting the approaches that use incremental and step-by-step -step progress, and it is, it is a revolutionary movement, we have a revolutionary movement why? How do you know it's revolutionary? They didn't say revolution. He didn't say that. They didn't say that. How do you know it's revolutionary? Because there are only so many ways that you can go about something. And if you're going to reject incremental and step-by-step -step approaches and you're going to question the very foundations, the society that we have, you're calling for revolution. And it is a movement that's calling for revolution. So you have a revolutionary movement of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. It doesn't want to operate within the American system, within the liberal system. It wants to call that into question. It wants to reject that. It wants a revolution that rejects incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. It rejects the slow, deliberative, argumentative process of the division of powers that's the central idea of how a 
democracy or a republic, I should say, or a Republican democracy like the United States is supposed to work. They want to reject that. They don't want incremental progress. They don't want step-by-step progress. They want change and they want it now. And it is a movement of activists and scholars dedicated to transforming our society in terms of power. And it's going to do that by taking up the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up while putting them in a so-called broader perspective that includes Marxism and emotion over reason that focuses on things like group and self-interest and unconscious mind reading that relies upon context, which is to say framing. How are you going to frame the issue that relies upon, and that's exactly what they do. They call this framing, telling, weaving narratives or telling stories or counter storytelling in law. The role of counter storytelling in law. There's a whole section or chapter in this book. So now you have some idea of what critical race theory is and what are the key things they want to throw out besides incrementalism and step-by-step progress that are the core of the Republican experiment. We could call it the American experiment, I guess, but it's Republicanism. What is it they want to throw out? So reading again, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. Quite the laundry list of things to throw out. Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order. So the entire idea upon which Republican democracies are founded called into question at its very foundations, including equality theory. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Equality theory. Critical race theory regards equality theory as a conspiracy to make people who are in minority groups believe they have a fair shake when they don't. You can read that explicitly in books by Robin D'Angelo, for example. I know they like to pretend she's not a critical race theorist now that she's so easily exposed, but she even writes in Is Everyone Really Equal? And I don't have it in front of me to quote exactly that Originally, these kinds of movements, the civil rights movements, embraced something like liberal humanism, and then they realized that that allows for inequality to perpetuate itself. And part of the reason why is it tricks or convinces people in minoritized groups, as they say, because, of course, society is minoritizing them. They're not minority. They are being minoritized. Um, It convinces them that they have more opportunity than the system actually allows. So critical race theory fundamentally holds the doctrine in this book. It refers to both material and structural determinism, but structural determinism is really the thing, is that the structures of society, the systems or superstructure, if you want to be more Marxist about it, creates conditions that determine people's lives, and those conditions are determined along axes, axes of power, including race and racism. That's what critical race theory is all about. And it's going to have to reject equality theory. Why? Because it wants to discriminate. Read Ibram Kendi, page 19, How to Be an Anti-Racist. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So if there's equality, there's no justification for the discrimination they want to do. Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning. 
You've probably heard before, we are a nation of laws. The whole point of the United States experiment was to create a nation of laws. And the laws are outside of the individuals. Granted, people create the laws, people can change the laws, we can write new legislation, we, we can repeal legislation, we can amend or edit legis legislation. The law is malleable, it is created by people, it is created by the society, but whatever the law is, just or unjust, and there's a process if it's unjust to challenge it and change it, whatever the law is, is the law. That's it. That's legal reasoning. We're going to, the law is separate. On the day you go to court, it is the, the lawyers argue within the law, the judge adjudicates within the law on that day. And if you wish to appeal or if you wish to make a claim that the law is unjust, there are pathways for that built in and available. But the point is that the law isn't what the judge feels like it is that day. We're going to use legal reasoning. We're going to have a rule of law. And they reject it. Critical race theory questions legal reasoning because they don't like objective standards. They don't like standards that are outside of their subjective control. Rule of law is the thing that's on the table there. So we've already, we already see them questioning the foundations of the liberal order. We see them questioning the idea of equality where we're not going to judge people or prejudge people, I should say, based on what group they happen to be in. We're going to look at them as individuals who are going to be judged on their individual merit because their group identity doesn't tell you anything necessarily about them. That's equality theory. So we're going to get rid of that. We're going to get rid of the rule of law. We're going to question those at their very foundation because they aren't creating the outcomes that the radical critical race theorists who wanted a completely different society that they're in control of in their radical revolutionary movement. It doesn't produce the outcomes they want. So we're going to question the very foundations of the liberal order. And it's not just a question, by the way, because the point is not <laughs> just to uh, understand society, but it is to change it. Their goal is to study and transform the relationship among race, racism, and power, they tell us. So again, equality theory, legal reasoning. So equality is out. Rule of law is out. Critical race theory questions the very foundation of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment, rationalism. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. The point of the enlightenment was not that human beings are infinitely rational creatures. It is that we are infinitely irrational creatures who have a kernel of rationality about us that we can work toward appealing to, work toward deferring to, that we can set aside our personal interests, for example, in the face of evidence, that we can set aside our personal interests in the face of superior argumentation, that we can apply tools like logic and reason to work through issues and try to understand them clearly to make better decisions. And the fruits of this are undeniable. It works. Greatest prosperity in human history you can say, well, prosperity is just a white cultural value, blah, 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 whatever you want to, whatever they want to do. But you can't argue with facts like that we have the, broadly speaking, lowest amount of abject poverty in the world, in all of human history. We have the fewest people in bondage in terms of slavery. You can say, no, there's so many people in, in prison, blah, blah, blah. It's a slightly separate issue. 
that's a slightly separate issue. We don't have in the in, in Western cultures genuine slavery any longer. We haven't in a long time. You can conflate what's going on under prisons into that, but we really haven't. And we have the lowest infant mortality, for example. We have the highest uh, health attainment. These things are not spread out completely equitably, but all ships have risen as this tide has risen. All ships have not risen necessarily the same amount or haven't ended up in the same place, but all ships have risen. Enlightenment rationalism, as a set of principles, produces prosperity. It reduces many problems in society that virtually everybody agrees, when put to it, are actually problems. It's not everything. Human beings are, if we appeal to Daniel Kahneman again, thinking fast and slow, we are emotional animals. We are, in fact, animals that require that we operate in the emotional realm, in the intuitive realm. Our social dynamics, you cannot, this is the problem many people who are autistic face, is that they tend to be overly rational, like there's this strange divorce between their their rational faculties and their emotional mind, and it causes them often, you know, to either be uh, a bit numb emotionally, or more importantly, that when they, they miss social cues and they, they end up on the wrong side of things that they didn't understand because their intuitive faculties aren't the same as uh, people who are not autistic, that then they have emotional outbursts because they're still an emotional animal underneath. The, the, the truth is that, that we can appeal to, we are an intuitive species that has to navigate our social sphere intuitively. We are an emotional species that bonds with one another emotionally and effectively, but at the bottom of the whole pile, for all of the value and importance that has in our social sphere, everything is not the social sphere. Whether or not your bridge works is not a social intuitive problem. It is a get the right answer, logical, rational problem. And what the architects of enlightenment rationalism understood was that human beings are, I don't want to say flawed, because I think it's intrinsic to our nature. And I think they maybe overestimated how rational people could be and how enduring rationalism can be versus, say, social identity or something like that. I think the weakness of, of the enlightenment is in misunderstanding how powerful social identity actually is to people. People care more about fitting in with their social group and not looking weird or not looking dumb or not looking bad than they care about having things right. And I think that while the Enlightenment thinkers realized this to a degree that they underestimated how powerful that is and how easily it can be hijacked and how fragile even a set of values around valuing rationalism is in comparison. But Enlightenment rationalism works, and the critical race theorists, like the critical theorists before them, don't like it. They just don't like it. We could talk about the dialectic of enlightenment from Adorno and uh, from uh, Horkheimer and Adorno from the 1940s, where they present the thesis that the dialectic of enlightenment, in other words, for them, the way that the, the enlightenment re reason progresses over time is that it heads toward rationalism, heads toward irrationalism. The rational becomes the irrational. Why? Because, of course, they're dialectic, so the thing has to become its opposite. It's just silly. Um, but they reject Enlightenment rationalism in critical race theory. So we're three out of the four here. Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, Enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. 
That is the whole American experiment. We're going to put forth a constitution that's going to be the supreme law of the land. All other law will be judged against the constitution. And we're going to do so, Declaration of Independence, with that all men are created equal thing, as neutrally as possible. Justice wears a blindfold, carries a scale and a sword. We're going to do so as neutrally as possible. And sure, I said, you know, history, I said, they're, they're very well recognizing, you know, the critical race theorists are very good at recognizing that in the past we did not live up to neutrality. We did not live up to equality. Uh, legal reasoning was definitely very biased. It's not perfect now. Uh, we don't always end up being enlightened, rational individuals. We're often short on information. We're often making emotional, impulsive decisions. We're easily influenced by things like propaganda and marketing, etc. But to just wholesale throw out the idea that we're going to have neutral principles of constitutional law, that we can have a supreme law of the land that is actually neutral in its orientation against what social group you happen to be in, that they want to throw that out rather than aspire to it, is central to critical race theory. So to summarize, this is a fundamentally anti-American project, a fundamentally anti-free society project, because it is a radical movement of activists and scholars that seeks to study and transform along axes of race all of society in terms of how power operates within it. It wants to tackle the same important issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies take up, but it wants to do them in a completely different way that gets inside of people's heads, that uses appeals to history, that frames things out in a way that benefits their argument, this context thing they point out. It has a Marxian underlying superstructure to it, the economic aspect to things, that's concerned about ideas like group interest, that cares more about group rights than individual rights, which is collectivism, that thinks it has the power to understand people's unconsciousness and that the, to, to dig into what they perceive to be people's self-interest, even when it's not there, which, interestingly enough, your self-interest is going to be assessed in terms of impact rather than intent. Somehow your self-interest is invisible to you, and critical race theorists alone have the magic seeing stones to see inside of your heart or inside of your mind, inside of your unconscious, to divine your true interests that you yourself might not even be aware of. Virtually all of critical whiteness studies is about that. White comfort, white equilibrium, white violence, white silence, white ta -ta -ta, it goes on and on and on. Privilege preserving epistemic pushback. And they're even going to dip into this idea that we're going to favor feelings over say, Enlightenment rationalism. We're going to favor feelings over reason. And it's a very radical movement that wants to do a revolution. It doesn't favor incrementalism or step-by-step -step progress. It favors revolution to those. Of course, if there's going to be a revolution, there have to be people who lead the revolution, and there have to be people who are going to be in charge after the revolution. And who would they be? Well, only people with critical race consciousness would qualify, so only critical race theorists. So it's one, it's also a very radical revolutionary movement interested in its own empowerment because it thinks it knows better than everybody how everything works and how society should be ordered. And it's going to approach this through a fundamental questioning of the Western civilization's later stage free society, Republican democracy project, in other words, the liberal order. It's going to reject the British Enlightenment in favor of the French Enlightenment with German characteristics and some maybe Chinese ones now. 
It's going to reject equality theory or question it at its very foundations. Equality maybe isn't enough. Maybe we need equity. But then we read Rochelle Gutierrez and say, equity is not enough. We need a revolution. It's going to question legal reasoning, the rule of law. No, we should instead have commissars who are going to make those decisions for us. People skilled in diversity are the people we must hire to make our decisions for us, to decide if our curricula in school are correct. People skilled in diversity. We're not going to use legal reasoning. We're not going to care what the civil rights uh, laws actually say, civil rights acts. We're going to, in fact, teach critical race theory in our schools regardless of the law. We're going to get rid of the idea of a reasonable person standard because we're going to say everybody's tainted with unconscious biases that make it so there is no technically unreasonable, there's no technically reasonable person. Everybody has self-interest and even group interest. They claim that there's a thing called white solidarity in the face of all data saying no such thing exists, but there is such a thing as every other racial group having racial solidarity. Self-interest. We're going to get rid of that. We're going to get rid of reasonable people. We're going to say instead that everybody's motivated by their self-interested, selfish, cynical biases that they're usually not even aware of, especially if they happen to occupy a dominant position because then they can be willfully ignorant of how good they have it. They don't know, it says, and they don't want to know. They're going to get rid of enlightenment rationalism so that instead subjective assessments, intuitive assessments that suit their moral vision rule. Remember, a critical theory holds up a utopian vision for society or an idealized vision for society, holds that up, analyzes and explains how the existing society does not live up to that utopian standard and inspires social activism on its behalf. In other words, people with a critical consciousness, people who have been programmed in critical theory, whether it's critical race theory or a different critical theory, are the people who are going to be able to reason for us because everybody else according to herbert marcuse isn't thinking for themselves they're thinking through the heteronymous interests that have conditioned them to think in false consciousness or according to michel foucault they have been socialized by the discourses of society to think in a certain way and not to be able to think outside of that way and these both of these concepts are at the heart of what's going on in the rejection of enlightenment rationalism and if you get rid of objective standards objective truth all you're left with is subjective subjective evaluations that are then going to be mediated through power. And it's, of course, a movement that wants to transform the relationship between race and power for their own benefit. Of course, they want to expunge the neutral principles of constitutional law because they don't want neutrality. They want to discriminate. They want to favor certain groups until they can achieve what they call equity. They want to remake the sins of history or redress the sins of history so that's reparations and they want to force equal outcomes with a mind to those reparations as well to make up for history that's a historical context that they're interested in as well so neutrality gets in the way of that constitutional law where everybody's going to be treated equal gets in the way of that that's what critical race theory is actually about. That's the first paragraph of critical race theory and introduction broken down and analyzed. This is why I think what I think about critical race theory. The reason isn't because I made it up. The reason isn't because I hate anybody or anything. It is because I read their book. It's because I read their book and I understand what it's talking about. Long episode of James Lindsay Only Subs, but you're worth it. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>